I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True Crime Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to have you as we have a, to put it bluntly, beefy episode today. This one, I just was almost overwhelmed with the plethora of information, which is a good thing. Right. That's how every case we cover should be. Mm -hmm. But It's it's a lot. It's a lot. Which is great. And it's there's a lot of twists. There's a lot of turns. We're going to be dropping a lot of names. Mm-hmm. Get out your cork boards. Get out your red string. Google these the pictures of these people. And you put it together on your personal cork board and your personal interrogation room. And we will illustrate it for you with our words. That is honestly how I felt doing this case. Like, this one connects here. Red string there. Okay, perfect. But this one also knows this one's cousin, sisters-in-law, daughter, and they have dog-in-law, walker. Yes, right. (laughs) It's just a lot. And there are dogs involved. They're all okay. Yeah, no dogs die. Yes, but it's just, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. It is very, there's an exoneration. There's witnesses. There's theories. There's lies. There's pipes. It's a lot. So... Definitely stick around. I think it'll be a really interesting case. And, I mean, you guys will, if you listen, you'll know, but it may perhaps still be unsolved, technically. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. So, stick around, listen to it. Before we get into that, we have some positives, some beautiful, beautiful generosity that you guys give to us. A little ray of sunshine. Mm. Which is ironic because it is downpouring right now. <laughs> yeah, it is gloomy as shit out there. Yeah. Stacy H. bought us four coffees. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you so much, Stacy. Michelle D. bought us, drumroll please, ten coffees. Thank you so much. Michelle also said that she has not spent much time in New England, but she loves our podcast. That made me so happy. And she also reassured us that what Liz's grandfather says, despite that, we don't talk too much. That made me laugh so hard. I loved that. I was, that just really boosted our (laughs) self-esteem, I think. Thank you so much, Michelle. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. That was really funny. Someone also bought us a coffee. Thank you so much, someone. Thanks, someone. And Julie purchased us four coffees. Thank you, Julie. Thank you guys so much. I feel like... We record, I feel like in the way that we record, we tend to pre-record, of course, but also spread out the times that we record. Yeah. So some of these may be a bit delayed, but thank you guys so much. And if you are wondering, if you're a newer listener and wondering how to buy us a coffee of your own, you go to our website, truecrimene.com. We have a contact us page. Scroll down below our handy dandy submission tool in which you guys are probably so done with hearing me talk about. Below that is our buy us a coffee. You click the button that says thank you and it will bring you to our page. But as we always say and stress, do not feel as though you have to purchase us anything. You do not have to give us a cent of your money. No. Just being here and listening, truly that is what means the world to us. That is all we need and it's all we want. Because we just, we love you guys and the support, you listening, I mean, if you listen to the ads, that pays us, so not a, not the whole bunch, but it adds up after four years, probably. So, <laughs> but truly, thank you guys. And before we move on to, I do have a little shout out. My dad, and we've talked, my dad is a very popular man. He really is. Everyone at the hospital, oh my gosh, that he works at, they love him. He is 
very popular. And he told me last week when I was visiting that he was walking down the hall, whatever, and all of a sudden, you know, a you know, friend of his, someone he was friendly with, she's a third shift housekeeper, came forward and was like, hey, you know, talking to my dad. And then he said he was like walking away and she was like, wait, Phil, come back. And she said, I love your daughter's podcast. And she said she loves us and she loves listening to us. And she listens to us every night, she said, while she works. No so way. So Kim, thank you so much for your support. We are so grateful for you. I'm like, it's just so wonderful to have wow. local support like that. Kim, I, thank you so much. Very sweet. And can we just talk for a second about how fucking important hospital housekeepers are? My God. In the pandemic? I, we were called healthcare heroes, nurses. No, 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 no. Housekeepers had to, Jesus Christ. And the thing, my dad's been a housekeeper at the hospital for my whole life. The things he's had to clean. Yeah. The things he's had to do. And all of his coworkers, they are the unsung heroes. So Kim, dad, all my friends at Exeter Hospital that are housekeepers that I miss very much. Thank you. We love you guys. You are doing God's work. Thank you guys for your service and for doing what you do seriously because the entirety of healthcare institutions would not be functioning at all whatsoever if it were not for you. 100%. And I feel like you guys don't always get praise. You know, the nurses are the ones that get like pizza parties and right. oh, staff of the month or whatever. Right. You guys really don't get a whole lot of recognition and it's really not fair because no. you're doing the hardest job of them all. Literally. And so it's, truly, thank you. It, so love it. Kim, thank you. Thank you for being our friend. We love you. Keep listening and uh, we we appreciate you. And that goes for everyone listening and all housekeepers across New England. H hospital. Hotel. Ugh. That must be gross. Nursing homes. Nursing homes. Oh, oh my Christ. God. Heroes, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. This case was suggested to us by two people, actually. Thank you, guys. Jasmine O via email. And Matt G via Instagram DMs. So thank you guys so much. Thanks, guys. I hope you guys enjoy our telling of the story. This one was a really good one. So thank you guys both for bringing it to our attention and making sure that we knew about it. Because, oh my God, we were floored doing the research. It took a long time to gather everything and read through it and just like process. You know, it's it's a very fascinating case. And I'm really glad you guys suggested it. So thank you. And without further ado, today we will be covering... The, the attacks, attacks of, of Doreen, Doreen Picard and Susan Laferte. All right, per usual, Katie, let's hear your sources for today's episode. Sure, I would love to. I have Medium.com. It was an article by Yasmin Scherer. Innocenceproject.org, Unsolved Mysteries Wiki, The Providence Journal, and Casetext.com, which was court documents. Mm, I love those court documents. I love I never thought I would be so excited right? to look at court documents, but here we are. I'm learning a lot of big words. Yeah. Big law words. Terminology. Yes, and how to read an affidavit, which is difficult because <laughs> there's a lot of words in italics and little asterisks, and it's like, it's just bizarre. But I love them. Great info. Yeah. I, for my sources, had another court document from La Justia. I had the same Medium article that you had, Katie, by Yasmin Schrerer. I had a post on Reddit. I had a, I actually had two articles from the Providence Journal. And I had 
the Unsolved Mysteries wiki as well. Katie, do you want to set us up? Tell us what's happening in this case. Yeah. So Doreen Picard, she was born in October of 1959 in Massachusetts. She was actually the oldest of four siblings. She was described as being selfless, strong-willed, and confident by her sister Catherine, who clearly looked up to her. Yeah. She was homecoming queen. She wanted to go into a career in childhood development, which I feel like you really have to be a certain kind of person to want to do that. 100%. So I think that speaks to her character. Yeah. She was beautiful. So beautiful. In February of 1982, at the age of 22, Doreen was living in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, in the apartment she shared with her boyfriend. They lived on the third floor of 409 Providence Street, and they were set to move out on February 20th. Great. Most of their belongings were packed up, and this brings us to the day of February 19th, 1982. There are two ladies in the title of this episode, obviously, so let us introduce Susan Laferte. She was 27 years old, and her and her husband Ernie actually owned 409 Providence Street. They were landlords, property owners, and they owned the house and rented out the rooms, from my understanding. Right. They lived there with their two daughters, three-year-old Nicole and their other daughter Marie of an unknown age. Susan was also active in their neighborhood watch. Also takes a certain kind of person. Yeah. Honestly, that's somebody who loves their community. I feel like ladies, especially if they're maybe middle-aged or a little older, Mm -hmm. and they're part of the neighborhood watch, I feel like they get a bad rap. Yeah. Because it's kind of like a, oh yeah, Karen's at it again. She doesn't like my trash can on two inches from the curb. Right. (laughs) Because usually if you live in a safe neighborhood, you tend to kind of look into other things like right oh they always walk their dog and their dog poops in this part of the lawn and yeah but susan genuinely was doing it to keep the place safe yeah for her young daughters absolutely yeah on our day in question february 19th 1982 susan's neighbor douglas heath was coming back home from work when he heard a child crying that's daunting can you imagine yeah that's crazy He saw Nicole, three years old, standing at the entrance of the basement, and he asked her where her mother was. She told him she was down there, lying down. (laughs) Okay. It's not great. That's very ominous. Douglas entered the basement a little after 3.30 p.m. to find an absolutely horrific crime scene. There was a body that he described to be sitting between the washing machine and dryer, and there was so much blood that Douglas could barely make out any distinguishing features of the body. He couldn't tell whether the person was female. He couldn't tell really much of anything. All he could just see was that the body was covered in just so much blood. That's awful. After coming to in the moment of initial shock and realizing he was looking at a murder scene. Right. Or at least a crime scene. Absolutely. He got a better look around. He was taking in the rest of the room, and this is when he realized that there was more than one body. Susan Laferte was found lying face down in her own blood. That's, oh, that's chilling. It was determined that the body described as being sitting between the washing machine and dryer was Doreen. She was pronounced dead at the scene when authorities arrived at 4.30 p.m. She had been beaten over the head multiple times with a 28-inch metal pipe. 
it was determined that someone had used the sweater that Susan was wearing to brutally and repeatedly beat her before strangling her with it. Miraculously, somehow Susan survived the horrible attack. Somehow. It's incredible. But she was put in a coma for an entire month. She, like, got to the hospital and she immediately had surgery, had a fiberglass plate put in her head. It was, and she was 27. Poor thing. And she had, of course, her young daughters. Mm -hmm. And to be in a coma for a month in the 80s, ugh. No, thank you. No, thank you. I don't like those chances. I don't like those odds. Police were so scared for her safety, they had her hospital room guarded around the clock in the event that the perpetrator tried to come back and kill what he thought was the only witness to the murder. Right. And, you know, for a while they were like, who was the intended target? Because both of them were attacked so viciously, Mm -hmm. it seemed personal on both levels. But could it be possible that one was collateral damage? Right. You know, they had no idea. Susan came out of her coma after 30 days and was left with multiple deficits and physical disabilities. She suffered from balance issues because her left eardrum was broken, which is so painful if she was conscious for that part of it. That is so excruciatingly painful. Right. She also only had partial use of her right hand. That sucks. I think most importantly, at least for this case and the investigation portion was that Susan also came out of the coma not having any recollection whatsoever of the attack. Right. Or really a lot of the events leading up to it. They said she, like, couldn't remember, like, New Year's of the year before on. Like, it was a good chunk of time. Oh, wow. Which is, I think, includes the birth of her youngest daughter. I could be wrong. She was, like, 15 months old, I think. She was young. Yeah. That's so sad. That's fucked. That's awful. So, obviously, like we kind of touched on, police were trying to figure out who was the intended target. If it was just one person, could it have been both of them? They wanted to know who was the intended target. They wanted to know who did it and why. You know? Like, it was just, there was a lot of questions. And, of course, being beaten about the head with a 28-inch metal pipe... The police initially thought that the woman had been shot. That was how intense the blood splatter was. That was how intense the injuries on these women's head were. Like, it was just so bloody and, oh, it was awful, awful scene. So they, it wasn't until Susan got to the hospital where they were like, oh, there are no gunshot wounds. Like, she was beaten. It was a lot. Like, it was, especially for Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Like, it's a, you know, it's a quiet nice, normal place. And that was insane. And like you said, Katie, Susan woke up from her coma, thank God, but she couldn't remember anything. And that could be because, you know, her head was smashed in Mm -hmm. and it sucks. And I feel bad for her that she experienced like those disabilities following it. And it's unfortunate that she couldn't remember her attack, but I think also in a way probably beneficial to her. um, Cause I can imagine that would be like the most PTSD inducing thing ever. I can't imagine even going back into the house to get your belongings. Right. After the fact. No, not at all. And it didn't happen in her, like, room. It happened in the basement, you know? Right. Yeah. There wasn't a whole bunch of witnesses to the attack here that happened to Susan and Doreen. There was two, really. Well, one that had 
probably was the best witness and another, a teenage girl who noticed something odd that day. The best witness they had was three-year-old Nicole, who I do want to reiterate is three years old. How reliable would you say a three-year-old is in describing someone? No, they don't know colors, really. You know, like it's just not, it wasn't a good situation. Like they were really struggling. So after prying and attempts to get any feasible information from Nicole, investigators gathered that Nicole was the one who actually let him inside and she thought it was her mom's friend. At least that's kind of what they thought. Like maybe she recognized him or was like, oh, your mommy's friend or whatever. Nicole described him as being a little bigger than her dad. She said he had a mustache and she said he was wearing jeans and sneakers and a cap. And she saw him have a rag in his back pocket, which she described as being, quote, polka dots, colored red and white, which I think is for a three-year-old. She used what she knew, taller than my dad, you know, like, oh, I like polka dots, like, not bad. Okay. He was wearing a cap. That made me giggle. That's cute. Obviously, it's not like super helpful, though, because she was three. Um, And she probably did not have colors like nailed down. They were thinking maybe that the polka dots was like a white cloth with a blood spatter on it. Four days after the murder was when they found the 28-inch lead pipe. And they were able to identify it as the murder weapon. Douglas had a 15-year-old stepdaughter named Lisa, and she said she saw a big maroon car near the building on the day of the attacks, but it was not there when the bodies were discovered. Interesting. She also said she heard noise coming from the basement, but didn't think anything of it at the time. Yeah. Which, how awful. I know. She probably regrets that, unfortunately. But how was she going to know? Right. It's a basement. There's probably... Washing clang, the washing machine exactly someone's yeah. probably oh someone's probably throwing a heavy load in again that's right wow that washing machine needs a maintenance order like yeah. so because the star witness for the case was a three-year-old not so solid police were saying oh her account isn't reliable she's changed her story multiple times no shit because she's three years old <laughs> she has the memory and attention span of probably a goldfish right The case went cold pretty quick. Unfortunately. It was not until 1988 when the case aired on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries in May of that year. As a result of the episode, police actually received several new tips, and this led them to have a little chat with 36-year-old Daniel Shaw, who was a construction worker and also struggled with alcoholism. Daniel told police that his friend... 37-year-old Raymond Tempest Jr., nicknamed Beaver, for reasons unknown, but also kind of bizarre. (laughs) He didn't even have buck teeth or anything. They just called him Beaver. I don't know why that is. But Daniel told police that one of his friends, Raymond, a.k.a. Beaver, committed the attacks. Hmm. Raymond was actually initially considered a suspect because he was one of the men who went into the house that day. Hmm. Interesting. And remember, like you said, Katie, this is a house that has rooms rented out. So who was he seeing at that house? And that was the questions that they were kind of asking as they discovered like, oh, Daniel Shaw comes forward and now he has this guy he knows. And oh, he was at that house that day. 
Why? And then it kind of started, a story started to be spun. It was discovered that Susan Laferte knew Tempest. She knew Beaver. How did she know? Well, let's just say she was the maid of honor at his wedding with his wife. So you could say that they were fairly acquainted. Also, later it came out that there was kind of some rumors and maybe some proof that Susan and Tempest had been having an affair at the time of her attack. So Susan, obviously, this was a very brutal attack on her. She, of course, did not deserve this. You know, her sleeping with her friend, like she was the maid of honor, that's a little not great. But, I mean, that's beside the point. They were, I really think, you know, they were having an affair, ultimately. The more they investigated, the more the police kind of thought maybe it was Susan that was the intended target and not Doreen like they had originally thought. Or maybe even just, you know, not knowing and that maybe Doreen was just collateral damage, which is so unfortunate. Turns out, a few months before the attack, Susan and Tempest had agreed to mate their two pit bulls. And as a result, when the puppies were born, Tempest had the first pick of whatever puppy he wanted. Okay, that happens a lot. People do that all the time. On the morning of the attacks, you'll never guess what day it was. Pickup day. Puppy pickup day. Yeah. That very day, he was going to pick up his puppy, his promised puppy. So that's interesting. Now this guy, Daniel Shaw, he's saying this stuff. They're looking into Tempest and they're like, okay, this is very interesting. So on the morning of the attacks, like we said, Tempest was set to go pick up his puppy. He went with the roommate of his then sister-in-law, a man named John Allard. At noonish, John and Tempest met at John's house. The two men picked up John's brother, in order to get the puppy they were picking up, a lot of people going, you know, whatever. And together they went to Susan's house. It was like 1.45. John and Tempest met with Susan, picked out their puppy, and left without a problem. This is all confirmed by Susan's sister, Carol, who was at the, she was at the apartment that afternoon. She was eating lunch with her sister. So she saw them. It was a civil transaction of puppy taking, and they left. No problem. And again, about 145. Sherry Richards, who was the sister-in-law that lived with John Allard, again, more names, I know. She later recalled that when she was asked by investigators, Tempest had come by like after they got the puppy, back to their apartment, it's like 2 p.m., telling her that he was going to meet up with his brother-in-law, a lot of siblings here, a man named Bobby Montero, and that he was going to drop off a car at Bobby's. Katie, what's special about Bobby Montero? He has a maroon car. Huh. Didn't you say... Would it be big in size, perhaps? A very large four-door SUV. Ah, that that's... Was, wow, what a little coinkydink. Because somebody... What was it? The Oh, the girl. She saw it, and it was gone by the time the murders happened. I don't know. Listen, I wasn't alive in the 80s. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me if maroon cars were very popular because the 80s are weird. But this 15-year-old Lisa knew enough to know that the the maroon car wasn't usually there. Well, interestingly enough, Tempest had a connection to a big old maroon car. 
And in fact, he used that big old maroon car the very same day. That's silly. How silly. At 4.30 p.m. that same day, Tempest came back to Sherry Richards' house, where John Allard had just returned as well. He had his little pit bull puppy. They were all, oh my god, yay. Sherry noted later, when she was asked by investigators, that Tempest was wearing the same clothes that he had arrived in, but the only difference was that he was wearing different boots. She also noticed he had a small scratch or, quote, bite mark on his wrist that she hadn't seen before. She claimed it was clear he had started drinking since she had last seen him two hours ago. Interesting. At 5 p.m., Tempest's brother, Gordon, who was a detective sergeant at the Woonsocket Police Department, called Tempest and told everyone at the house, Sherry Richards, John Allard, and Tempest himself, what happened to Susan as Sherry and Susan were friends and it was kind of known. I'm sure his brother knew that he was having an affair with Susan. According to Sherry, when she told the men about the call, they were both shocked and they immediately went to the police station until like 11 p.m. Where there, they were like, Okay, I know this happened. We want you to know we were here. We were picking up a puppy. Carol saw us, you know, like it was fine, you know, whatever. And I think John was telling the truth because he had gone and gotten the puppy and that was great. But then he and Tempest, they separated. And maybe John didn't know that Tempest had made a return visit. On February 20th, which was the next day, Tempest went back to the apartment where Sherry and John lived, and they all sat down to talk about what had happened and what they were going to say to police, which is so, that screams guilty. You don't make that up if you're innocent. Right. You don't have to corroborate your story with your friend. Like, that's, that's skeevy. That's not innocent behavior. No. Supposedly, they ended up agreeing on the story that Tempest went with John to John's father's home. And when confronted about this later as to why they came up with an alibi, Tempest was like, it's because I was doing drugs and I didn't want my family to know that I had been gone doing drugs. Bullshit. And then apparently, after Shaw, Daniel Shaw, came forward, a 16-month investigation started, and on June 4th of 1991, a grand jury indicted Tempest for Doreen's murder, and he was arrested on June 5th. Here's the shitty part. The statute of limitations had expired on Susan's attack, because it was just an attack. She didn't die. Which I did after I wrote this point, I put in parentheses, which is stupid. Because it is. She was like an inch from death. And the doctor said she was hanging on by a thread for wow. 30 days. And they're like, well, she's, I mean, she, her hand's kind of screwy and she can't see her here or whatever. But, and, but she's alive. There so. were guards posted up outside her room 24 hours a day because they thought the killer would come back and take her out because <laughs> she's the only witness. Exactly. I think statute of limitations is stupid in all regards. That's an argument for another day, but I hate them. Abolish that. Yeah, abolish it right now. And then, of course, with the trial, there came suddenly more people, more witnesses. And this is where we have you guys take out the corkboard, unravel the red string, Google some pictures, because this, this is where it gets kind of confusing. Besides some circumstantial evidence and several witnesses, the police had come up with an ultimate possible theory as to what happened. And again, it's a theory. 
They believed that Tempest had gone back to the apartment after getting the puppy, which he did with John, and that he had gotten into a fight with Susan, which then became violent. It was then believed that maybe Doreen had simply walked in on the argument, perhaps going downstairs to do laundry, when she was killed because she was a witness, which I think seems pretty likely. I don't think, I think she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Very unfortunate given she was moving out in less than a day. Right. That's really sad. I hate that. There had also been a very large number of witnesses that were interviewed and testified during Tempest's trial, which occurred in April of 1992. Stick with me, people. Stick with me, Katie. We're going to go through it, okay? Supposedly, there were several people that Tempest had, quote, confessed the attacks to. Let's start with John Guarino. He was a neighbor of Tempest at this time. He claimed that about a year after the attack, which, remember, when they're testifying, it's been over almost 12 years. So it's been a long time. So this is within the a year of the attacks in, like, 81, 82. He had asked Tempest if he was responsible. I don't know why. Maybe just because he knew he knew Susan, whatever. Tempest, according to John, said that he then was met with the answer of Tempest telling a long, detailed account of the attack. And John didn't believe it at first because apparently Tempest was laughing during this story. But then it kind of became more clear that maybe he wasn't. Because several weeks later, apparently it hit Tempest that it probably wasn't a good idea to have shared that with somebody, like a neighbor, that maybe he didn't know all that well. So he returned to the apartment where John lived and threatened him, saying, quote, he better keep his mouth shut. And that if he shared the conversation with anyone else, he would be, quote, seriously injured. Mm -hmm. And then Tempest also was like, and it doesn't matter because they have no proof it was me anyway. And so John was like, I'm clocking that for later. You just threatened my life. Um, you were the one who just told me you killed these women. Okay. Ironically, John's girlfriend at the time, Donna Bousquet, was at Susan's apartment that day, at the time that Tempest came to the apartment, after the fact of the puppy adopting. So now they're both connected. She, during the testimony, which is now again like 12 years later, she recalled that Tempest was upset because Susan was going to tell his wife, Jane, that they were having an affair. And this was after Jane and Tempest had recently reconciled their problems and kind of were like getting back together, figuring it out. So it sounds like she kind of walked in or at least heard them arguing. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? Let's talk about another person. Ronald Vaz. He was, um, let's say, Tempest's cocaine buddy. They love to coke it up together. I don't know if that really was a term, but I'm using it. I'm sticking to it. He claimed that Tempest had confessed the crime to him more than once. Vass said that he had heard about the attack and Tempest's involvement from our friend Daniel Shaw a few days after it happened. He also said that Tempest visited him several times and gave very detailed accounts of the attack, in which he implicated his buddy, his brother-in-law, Bobby Montero with the big ol' SUV, maroon-colored, wackadoo vehicle. He also expressed concern that Bobby would talk and take him down. So he's just, like, incriminating himself left, right, left, right. Crazy. And talking to people about it. 
Isn't that rule number one? That's how you always see people get caught is because they're bragging about it or they're going around with their big ass mouth. How many cases have we covered that probably would have been unsolved if the perpetrators hadn't gone around spilling the beans, let the floodgates open to whoever's there to listen? That's not how you... Okay. That's not how you commit a crime successfully. (laughs) That's, That's like how to get away with murder... 101. Right. You don't tell anybody what you did. Of course. Right. Wait, what? You have to keep it a secret? (laughs) What if you want to brag? Like this fucker. Right. He also told Vaz that the argument between him and Susan was based around the fact that she wanted them to both leave their spouses. He refused, and so she got upset and hit him first. Okay. You beat her with a metal pipe within an inch of her life, and then murdered. And that's not just, that's not justified. So shut up. Just stop talking to people, you idiot. That's not self-defense in any way, shape, or form. No. No. Oh, Christ. Also, a sex worker named Loretta Rivard came forward and said that in 1988, she spent some time drinking, snorting cocaine with Tempest, and then... He proceeded to brag and talk in great detail about the murder and the attack. This dumb, dumb idiot. He's like getting high, getting drunk, like, yeah, I did it. I don't know why this, again, he's clearly not a bright man, (laughs) but this is like next level. Yeah. He just wants to brag. And it went on for so long where there were no answers. Like, this was all a mystery for 10 years. Right. And that's what's crazy to me is that all these people that are saying, oh, yeah, he bragged to me. He told me the whole story, this and that. Where were you? I think a lot of them were doing drugs. I think think that's a lot of it is that they're all doing drugs and that this is all in the setting in which he's confessing these crimes to them is because he's high and they're all high. Right. Right. Which I could get maybe from... A friend, a, one of the people he confessed standpoint for their own safety. Yeah. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, it went on solve for so long. And through all of the confessions over the years, Tempest claimed that he would get away with it because he was a Tempest. God damn it. Remember, his full name is Raymond Tempest Jr., a.k.a. Beaver, for whatever fucking reason. He had some pull in the police department. His dad, who recently retired at this point, had been the chief inspector for the entirety of the Woonsocket Police Department. His brother, Gordon, who called Sherry that night, he was a police lieutenant in 1982. Like, it was perfect. It was perfect. One of the confessions that Tempest made to Ronald Vaz, one of the men who testified, his cocaine buddy, involved this claim. On the day of the murder and the attack, Tempest's dad went to the crime scene with another officer, had everyone leave the room, and then called Tempest to locate the murder weapon so they could clean it off. Yeah. His trial in April of 1992, ten years after the attack, prosecutors claimed that Tempest's family had helped him cover up the murder and that his family also intimidated witnesses. Which doesn't sound that impossible, given his the pull in the police department. Absolutely. He has the brothers in blue backing him up by Holy association. Shit. Yeah, and I feel like police intimidate witnesses anyway. Uh, we see it on video all the time. Oh my God, exactly. They do it unprompted. They just do it to do it. At this point, they're doing it for someone. Now they're really gonna 
go all out. Oh, yeah. As we've seen before. Oh, yeah. On April 22nd of 1992, Tempest was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to 85 years in prison. Fun fact, less than a year after his arrest, his brother Gordon, who again was the police lieutenant in Woonsocket, was arrested and charged with two counts of perjury, and then later charged with five more counts of perjury after his testimony at his brother's trial. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. Also, Bobby Montero, the owner of that delicious maroon car, he was also charged with perjury, and he was sentenced to five years in prison. So maybe they're like, oh, we shouldn't have lied. Now I'm going to jail for lying. Wow. Idiots. Through all of this, his arrest, the trial, investigation, everything, even his prison sentence, Raymond maintained his innocence. After several years of imprisonment, he was able to get into contact with the New England Innocence Project, who we have donated to. We've talked about a couple times on this podcast. They do great work. We talked about them recently. Yeah, we've done, what, two separate exonerations with their own cases Mm -hmm. from them. Talked about them a lot. Yeah, they're great. Yeah. The New England Innocence Project found that there was no physical evidence that could be linked back to Raymond. And, of course, no eyewitnesses who could confirm that it was him. They also found that the state's case was pretty much solely based on four people who said Raymond confessed to them. Right. A bunch of those names that you can go back to on your registering bulletin board right yeah it's probably covered in registering by now yeah in tears <laughs> it's frustrating maybe a little bit of blood tacking everything up right the innocence project found that all four of these people were especially vulnerable to police pressure because of their own backgrounds in drug trafficking drug use or sex work yeah they also gave testimony that was inconsistent and quote highly suspect mm, interesting Basically, Tempest was basing his plea off of this claim. He said that he and his brother, Gordon, had been targeted by two police officers for, quote, political reasons. Tempest claims that Gordon, his his brother, the police lieutenant, had been investigating Officer Rodney Remblad for narcotics dealing, bribery, and auto theft. And as a result, the officer was trying to get back at him. He also claimed that the police coerced many of the witnesses in the case, feeding them information and even convincing them to implicate him in the crime. Which, honestly, not that unbelievable. I kind of have to be like, okay, I could see that, because police do do that a lot. Wow. Yeah, but he's kind of like, now he's throwing his brothers in blue by association under the bus. (laughs) So it's like, okay. He, you know, again, kind of convincingly, Tempest said it was because these witnesses were involved in drugs and or sex work and were pressured to do that because of their own crimes, which I hate to say it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Investigation also revealed that there were hairs recovered from Doreen's clenched fist, which is awful. So awful. She tried to fight back so hard. Yeah. DNA testing from the hair revealed that the hairs did not match Raymond. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. What do we know now? Right. Now, these days, hair is not seen as really significant evidence. Yeah, I don't think it's admissible at all in court. Right. Same thing with, like, carpet fibers. And I think, honestly, too, they're saying bite marks. Yeah. 
I think you're right. Which is crazy because how many convictions have they made on all three or four of those things? I mean, of course, most famously Ted Bundy and the bite mark on the co-ed that he murdered um, in Florida matched his teeth perfectly. Right. And maybe that's true. Obviously, he did it because he was Ted Bundy. But I mean, I don't know if I would really rely so much on just the hairs not matching Raymond. Right. Because what if it was her? What was she? What if she was reaching for her own hair? What if she was crawling on the floor and got dust and hair in her hand while she sat up? It could be anything. Right. Or what if he had a friend there helping him? Right. Like the possibilities are endless. Absolutely. That's what the Innocence Project said back in the day. Mm -hmm. And that helped get Raymond off. Sure did. It was also noted just before we get to the result of the Innocence Project project. Tempest had actually named someone else as a potential suspect in Susan's attack and Doreen's ultimate murder. His name was Donald Degassi, a man who actually attended Doreen's funeral. Nicole, that three-year-old who was found wailing, saying mom's downstairs, lying down, she's sick, told a family member at that funeral-like gathering that she thought, quote, that's the man who boomed mama. <gasps> I don't know what she meant by boomed, probably what, like hit? But that's what she supposedly said about Donald. Of note, she also saw Tempest and did not react to him. So that is interesting. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I think Tempest is guilty as fuck. So hearing these things, I'm like, oh, no, that kind of works in his favor a little bit. <laughs> but I still think he did it. Unfortunately for Degassi, he had an inconsistent alibi for the day of the murder. While in the hospital, Susan was asked if Degassi was her attacker, and supposedly she nodded. Later, though, Susan says she has no memory of this, which is fair, because she had just come out of a coma and probably didn't even know her own name at that point. So. In 2014, the New England Innocence Project and Tempest's attorneys asked for his conviction to be overturned. They based this on the allegations of police misconduct as well as the prosecution's misconduct. Unfortunately for them, this was denied. A year later, they tried it again. This time it worked, and the state superior court judge named Daniel Procaccini, Italian, I'm sure, uh, vacated his conviction. He ultimately ruled that the entire investigation had been mismanaged that prosecutors didn't disclose important statements regarding the maroon car, and that there was a witness who testified differently about the car. He also concluded that the crime scene was never properly secured, and that apparently the one person in charge of collecting evidence wasn't familiar with the standard procedures at the time, which, I hate to say it again, is pretty fair. After spending 24 years in prison, Raymond agreed to an Alford plea in 2017, an Alford plea basically means that he has to acknowledge evidence of the prosecution, but it still allows him to maintain his innocence. And because he agreed to this plea, he was released from prison. With time served, so that 24 years. And for those of you true crime addicts like me and Katie, uh, on Netflix, there's a series called The Staircase in which um, an author, Michael Peterson, was I mean, there was a long trial they documented it all with this docuseries, was tried for the death of his wife, who supposedly fell down the staircase. And in the end, he ended up using an Alfred plea, which I, is the only place I'd ever heard of it. So it's not used very often mm -hmm. um, because it can be kind of tricky, just the legality of it. But 
Tempest was able to do it, and I mean, he got out. I also thought it was really interesting because they wanted to retry him altogether, and they ultimately didn't, but a lot of it was kind of contested because since the 1992 trial, nine of the witnesses had died. So there wasn't like, those witnesses were like everything to that trial. So it was kind of interesting. They wanted to retry. What did they think? They think they were going to win with the fact that most of their witnesses had died and that was what carried the case. Right. Interesting. I don't know. Wow. But like you, like we said, they didn't end up retrying him. So it was moot. But I thought that was crazy. Nine people. Nine. Jesus. Donald Degassi, who little Nicole felt as though was the perpetrator and did not have a whole lot of great alibis and things on his side, yeah. passed away in 2011 and the case still considered unsolved. Anyone with any information on the murder of Doreen Picard and the attack on Susan Laferte is asked to please call the Woonsocket, Rhode Island Police Department. Their phone number is 401-766-1212. That is the crazy, crazy attack of Susan Laferte and the ultimate murder of 22-year-old Doreen Picard. An absolutely insane twister of a case. Now, Katie, I am genuinely curious. What do you, who do you think did it? Do you think Tempest is innocent? I think he's really sketchy. Yes, that's for sure. I think he's real sketchy. I also think that the whole conviction was sketchy. Yeah. Especially with all of that corruption in the police department. I mean, on both sides. Yeah. On his side. And on the side against him. Right. It is so sketchy. But I also think that it's really intriguing that at Doreen's funeral, the little three-year-old Nicole was like, that's the one that boomed mommy. Which is such a... Oh, so sad. So I really... I don't know. I mean, especially with the Innocence Project getting involved, they have done such amazing work. Yeah. They have truly exonerated people who needed to be exonerated. Like... Right. From day one, of course. So I just... I know I don't want to give... I don't want to say anything bad against them because they're wonderful. Right. But I mean, everybody is human. Everybody makes mistakes. So it, it is possible. Yeah. And I mean, they could be just doing their part on the fact that clearly the investigation was mismanaged. Yeah. Which even if he is guilty, that's not fair to him. Right. So, I mean, okay. We'll let it slide. It's so crazy. But to think that if he really did do it and he was exonerated after 24 years and he ruined Susan's life. She's disabled permanently. Yeah. Her memory, she can't remember the birth of her child. That's horrific. Yeah. And then to murder a 22-year-old brutally, so brutally that the neighbor couldn't even make out any distinct features about her, only that it was a body sitting up with so much blood. Yeah. I think you need a little more than 24 years for that. I would agree. And the worst part is he cannot be tried for that again. Right. It's double jeopardy. At least, I think. Crazy. It's very awful. So I really don't know. But you guys, I feel like we both, we always ask for you to share your thoughts with us. This one, we're placing a lot more emphasis on that. Yes. Share your thoughts. Let us know what you guys think. Because it could go either way. 
I could see, like I said, the Innocence Project doing it just because it was a shitty investigation. I could also see him absolutely, him being Tempest, being the murderer, given the events of the day. Yep. But Nicole, I mean, I know she's little, but the, her reaction, that is pretty interesting. So, but I still think it was Tempest. I mean, his nickname was Beaver. That's pretty, that's pretty criminal. <laughs> And guys, like Katie said, please let us know what you think. Instagram, Twitter, find us on there. Tell us what you think. True crime, any. All lowercase. And you can also send us an email at truecrimeany at gmail.com. We also, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy dandy submission tool where you can send us your thoughts on this case, please. Please. Your thoughts on other cases we've covered, maybe go back and check out the other exonerations we've done. There's two of them. Episode 29, James Tillman. And then we did, it was episode 88, I believe, with Ulysses Charles. Yeah. So go back to those. Both from the New England Innocence Project. And both black. Yeah, that's right. On our handy-dandy submission tool, you can also ask us questions, send us cases that you would like to hear us cover based in New England, please. You can leave your name if you so choose. You could also be anonymous. And if you need a little refresher on how to buy us a coffee, well, buy myself a coffee and buy Liz a another delightful beverage. Liz does not partake in coffee. I do like hot chocolate. Ooh, you can buy myself a coffee and Liz a hot chocolate. (laughs) You scroll down a little further and click that button as we chatted about in the top of the episode. But again, I cannot stress this enough. No pressure. Right. You guys just being here and hearing us at the end of the episode ask for your thoughts and talk about the submission tool and just listening through really means the world to us. We could not ask you guys for more than that. And you know, listening and then talking to us about the cases, giving us feedback, whether it be about us and our podcast or the cases. We love that. Always, always, always. So please do not hesitate to reach out. As a reminder, it is just me and Katie. So you will be hearing from either of us at all times, guaranteed promise, no doubt. So if you want to, you know, talk to us or whatever, you know, no, just kidding, but for real. Definitely send us messages, send us DMs, email us, do whatever you want. We're always open to talking about these cases, hearing your thoughts, your feelings. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.